You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? I have to correct a lie that I told last week. I said I thought last week was going to be our last nice weekend of the year. We got another one. So this is amazing. I am not complaining about this October at all. Uh, So we're in week two of our series, Gospel, Good News for Who. And uh, this week, I want to just begin with this statement that every single one of us is constructing a house of cards with our faith. Every single one of us is constructing a house of cards with our faith. Now, I was going to attempt to like actually build a house of cards on stage, but that would be really funny for you and really frustrating for me. So instead, we're just going to pretend like there's one here. And every single card of this house represents an idea that you were handed about faith, about God. Some of these cards that you were handed are good and true, and right. Yeah, other cards, other things that we were taught were maybe not so good. Some cards are intentional. Some cards are unintentional. The reality is every single one of us have been handed cards that we have constructed a house or a worldview of our faith. Like, for example, this card might represent that Jesus died for my sins so I could experience salvation. That's one of the cards in my house. But then right next to it, this card might represent that when I go to church, you have to wear a suit and tie and dress a certain way. That's the church I grew up in. Here it's more like you wear jeans and a sweatshirt, and that's cool. Another card might suggest that God has musical preferences, right? Like Maybe some of you grew up in traditions where organs belonged in heaven and drums belonged in hell or something like that, and, and those cards exist in our house of cards of faith. Here's a really difficult one for some of us. Some of us have been told that God is a Michigan Wolverines fan, <laughs> and that is part of our house of cards of faith. Others of us have been told that God is on the verge of losing his ever-loving mind at you at any given moment, that he is constantly on the verge of blowing up. Others of us associate God with a specific pastor or leader. Others of us associate God love based on our own behavior. I mean, the reality is every single one of us, we have a card, a house of cards that we have built our faith out of. Some of the cards in this house are good. Some of the cards in this house are are not good. Some are, are neutral. And the question I want to ask today is what happens when a card is removed or a card fails you? What happens when something that you associate with faith lets you down? When a pastor fails? When a church hurts you? When God doesn't answer a prayer the way that you expected or you wanted? What happens when the house of cards crumbles down? You see, some of the cards that you've been handed 
belong in your house of cards. They're good. They are unshakable truth, like Jesus being the only way to the Father, like Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, like salvation for sins. Some of these cards are unshakable truth, but others of them are just over-spiritualized human traditions. Do you know the difference in your own life? You have the right cards in your house of faith. Have you constructed the house with the right cards? Listen carefully. There are people all around you right now who are deconstructing their faith because there have been parents or churches or pastors that have made things foundational about Jesus that are simply not foundational about Jesus. We've added layers to the message, the noise of human tradition and preferences to the message. And so we've built these house of cards of faith that are so fragile where we have placed a a preference about tattoos next to our conviction that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And if even one card is moved, the whole thing comes crashing down and we're left with a very fragile house. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Don't ask questions, don't doubt, don't wrestle. This is a fragile house that we have built, (sighs) right? We have a generation that sees this fragile house and is taking great delight in deconstructing it piece by piece. Did you know that nearly 70% of Gen Z who grew up in the church is going through this process of deconstructing this house right now? That is a high number. When I was in youth ministry just a few years ago, that number was closer to about 50%. It's about 66% now. Maybe you're here and you've wrestled with real faith questions, real doubts, real wrestlings, and you've never had a place to really bring them. You've never been able to wrestle with them openly. Here's what I'm absolutely convinced of. I don't believe doubt is toxic to faith, but I believe silence is toxic to faith not have the ability to wrestle through these. Neither, nearly three-quarters of Christians, according to studies, struggle and wrestle with some level of doubt and questions about God and their faith. And so this is why, even as we begin this morning, I want to ask the question, do we have the right cards in our house? Because I am so grieved over seeing young people say, I've evolved. I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm an ex-evangelical. I have church trauma, whatever it might be. This is the mantra of this generation. But what if deconstruction, I want to ask this question here as we begin this morning. What if deconstruction is not always a bad thing? What if deconstruction is one of the greatest invitations we have to a deeper walk with Jesus? What if deconstruction is one of the most important ways that we can actually have a picture of God that is more clear, more full, more accurate. What if deconstruction is the greatest invitation, one of the greatest invitations we have to a deeper walk with Jesus? I want to explore this question this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the journey, the faith journey of a guy in the scriptures named Thomas. Now, Thomas was a disciple of Jesus, and he, over, over the years, over the centuries, has kind of garnered himself a nickname. Does anybody know what Thomas's nickname is? Yes. Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, but he was not always Doubting Thomas. In fact, there's not a lot of 
stuff that we know about Thomas, but we do have a couple different glimpses of his involvement in Jesus' ministry before he got the nickname Doubting Thomas. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to actually look at Thomas' faith journey. And I believe that if you're a parent in the room or you're a small group leader in the room or you're a student or a person who is actually going through this process of doubt and deconstruction, that there is good news here for you today, that we can learn something from Thomas' faith journey about how to walk through this process in a way that draws us closer to the person of Jesus. And so we're going to begin in John chapter 14, verse 3. John chapter 14, verse 3. And this is kind of a glimpse into a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And so as we begin, this is Jesus speaking here, and this is what he says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, so this is Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, perhaps one of most, Jesus' most famous statements that he ever said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can I just say, that is a card that belongs in your house. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, have known, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, there are three stages of faith that we walk through in this life. Three stages of faith that Perhaps students living in your house have walked through, or classmates or, or coworkers have walked through. And, and I want to look at these three stages of faith through Thomas' journey. When we meet Thomas, he is in what's called the first stage of faith or the construction stage of faith. Right? He is, you can see in this moment here, he's inquisitive. He's got questions for Jesus that are more curious than doubtful. He believes. He's seen so many miracles of Jesus' power, and his attitude is one of, tell us more, Lord. It's not one of doubt. It's one of, tell us more, Lord. In fact, there's, a, there's an instance, and this is one of the only other places that we see Thomas talked about in John 11, where Jesus' disciples are having this debate as to whether or not they should go see Lazarus, because this would be a very dangerous place for Jesus and his disciples to go. They knew there were Jewish people in that area that wanted to kill them. And there is one disciple that spoke up among the rest and said, we will go with you, Jesus, and we will die with you if that's what it takes. Who was that guy? Thomas. Thomas. He wasn't always doubting Thomas. In fact, his early stage of faith is a construction stage, and many of us know this stage well. Maybe you have young kids who are in this stage right now. This is the stage that my kids are in. This is the stage of faith where we receive the gospel as we are, right? We receive what we are handed. I love John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the very first verse my now almost seven-year-old memorized in Sunday school here at New Life. The very first verse, and when I go and I ask my kids, what is God like, their answer is not an answer that comes from a deep exegetical study of the scriptures or a deep philosophical overview of, of the word of God. It is simply, I'm going to repeat what I was told from the trustworthy people around me, right? I, I asked my kids last night, um, 
what do you think of when you think of God? Or what is God like? And I shouldn't have done this while they were watching TV because they were a little distracted, but, but they gave me answers like, God is trustworthy. He's loving. One of my kids said, God is fun and trumpety. And I'm like, what does trumpety mean? She goes, I don't know. That's just what God is. Right? There's, there's something beautiful about the construction stage of faith where we receive faith as we are. I think of my own faith journey. You know, I didn't study the scriptures in depth as a five-year-old kid, but what I was passionate about was Jesus and going and telling about my neighbors about him. I remember moments growing up where we had two unsaved neighbors that lived next to us named Scott and Michelle. They were a young couple, and they were the type of people that were you know, throwing boozy parties every Friday night, and they were not Christians. And I just remember as a five-year-old kid having a boldness of faith and going over and just sitting around their dinner table with the two of them, five-year-old Brad and two adult you know, young marrieds, and I told them about Jesus. And they were so kind and patient and like they just put up with it. But I just think about that stage of faith, like there's something beautiful about that construction stage of faith where we receive the gospel as we are. And, and we have 60-year-old people in our church who didn't grow up in the church who are in that stage of faith right now, and I love it. Like if that's you, you are some of my favorite people on the planet to be with because there's nothing to prove. You're, you're not trying to show anything. You, you, you know what you don't know or you don't know what you don't know, and, and you just come with this genuine wonder and awe and vulnerability about what God is up to. You say things like, I don't know what's happening inside of me, but I'm here for it, and I'm excited about it, right? This is the construction stage of faith. You receive what you are handed as is from those around you, but here is the problem. It is impossible to receive the good news of Jesus from a perfect community. It is impossible to receive the good news of Jesus from a perfect community because they don't exist. Even Jesus' disciples was an imperfect community of doubters and wrestlers and um, just people struggling in faith. Like Jesus didn't even lead a perfect community and they had a perfect leader, right? It is impossible to receive the good news of Jesus from a perfect community because they don't exist. And while the construction stage of faith is beautiful, it's really fragile. It's really fragile because at some point, that stage is confronted by the reality of the broken world that we live in, right? At some point, that construction phase is shaken a little bit. Maybe for you, you grew up with a specific pastor, and so much of your faith is based on that pastor's teachings or that person's teachings. I think of friends of mine who, um, like Ravi Zacharias, that name comes to mind. This insanely knowledgeable Christian apologist who was so influential in the faith of so many of my friends, and then after he dies, it comes to light that he is a horrendous abuser of women and a sexual just such sexual perversion. What does that do to your, your house of cards of faith when that person was so influential and then you just find out, wow, they're really imperfect? So it can look like a pastor that lets you down. It can look like an unanswered prayer that shakes the house of faith. It can look like a betrayal or a death or an unmet expectation. There are so many different things that we walk through where our construction stage of faith is confronted with the realities of the broken and sinful world that we live in. 
which is why you can't just remain in the construction stage. There's, there's another stage. There's a, there's a next stage. And uh, if I can just speak to this for a moment here, our, our house of faith remains fragile if our faith has not been tried by fire, challenged, or tested in some way. Like, if you haven't wrestled over faith in some way, chances are you still have a pretty fragile faith. Our house of faith remains fragile when we make things foundational about Jesus that are simply not foundational about Jesus, and then we create church environments where we're not allowed to ask hard questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Right? This can leave us in a place where some of our cards in our house look more like idols that we create in the church around our musical preference or clothing choices or celebrity or external things. Like Some of us are constantly looking for the wrong fight in the church because we're not in the right one right now. Our kids witnessing our own hypocrisy, we preach one thing and live another. Jesus said it perfectly in Matthew 7. He said, when the storms come, not if the storms come, but when the storms come, that's when you find out what your house of faith is truly, truly made of. That's when you find out what the foundation is. And if your house of faith is not built on the right foundation, it will be shaken and destroyed by the storms. And this is what happens in the life of Thomas. There is an event that happens in Thomas' life that shakes his faith to the core, that changes everything for him, that turns his world upside down. Does anybody know what that event is? It's the death of his rabbi. It's the crucifixion of Jesus that turns Thomas' faith world upside down. And the next time that we see Thomas in John is after Jesus has been resurrected from the tomb. He's come alive, and he's appeared to multiple pockets of different disciples, but he has not yet appeared to Thomas. And I want you to watch what happens as we look at this conversation with Thomas in John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So he wasn't with them before with the other disciples who had seen Jesus. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is the second stage of faith formation. This is what we call the deconstruction phase. Thomas is in this phase right now where he is believing himself over the witness of the community around him. Unless I see him, unless I touch him, unless I am able to test him, I will never believe. Guys, this is the place where so many people are getting stuck in faith right now. They have hard questions about the scriptures. They have hard questions about hypocrisy that's been perpetuated in the church that they just witnessed time and time again from well-known Christian leaders that have just come up really, really short. And what ends up happening is they just begin ripping cards out of the house and watching the whole thing crumble. But what if there's a right way to deconstruct? What if there's a Jesus way to deconstruct faith? There are two types of ways that people can deconstruct faith. And I want to talk about these two. The first one is this me-centered deconstruction. This is Thomas's deconstruction. 
It's a deconstruction that says, if I can't understand God, I'm not going to trust God. If God doesn't fit within my preferences, my agendas, my understandings, he is not worthy of my trust. My moment in time, my culture is the most important and the best. I'm going to live my truth and make God in my image. This is me-centered deconstruction. That God conforms to me, that my life does not leave room for faith. That if I don't have a God that I can understand, test, reason with, I want nothing to do with him. Thomas, I will believe in the resurrection if I can touch him with my own hands. So here's what we end up doing. I believe in God if. I believe in God if he conforms to my view of sexuality. I believe in God if he conforms to my preferred view of politics. I believe in God if he conforms to my understanding of science and we just begin tossing out the cards of what we were handed. Oh, and to back up my point, here's the laundry list of church leaders that have failed me and the trauma that I've dealt with and the hurt I've dealt with in the church. Deconcentered deconstruction is a reality that a lot of young people are walking through. I have students and friends who have walked through this process, and chances are you have people you know that have walked through it too. Maybe you are walking through it right now. And it's easy to look at young people and say, well, this is just a new thing. This is a new fad. But me-centered deconstruction is not a new thing. It's been happening for centuries. In fact, many of you, all of you probably know the name Thomas Edison. Thomas Jefferson, wrong Thomas. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson is one of our founding fathers. And he's often hailed in circles as like this bastion of Christian thought and faith, but Thomas Jefferson was a massive deconstructionist. Did you know that? He came out of what's called European Enlightenment thought and was a deist. And if you actually, you can see this, but if you look at Thomas Jefferson's Bible, it looks exactly like this, where he literally took scissors to the pages of his Bible because Thomas Jefferson came out of a worldview in Europe that said God created the world, Right, That's fine, but as soon as he created the world, he withdrew himself completely from all of its involvement. And so there is no supernatural at work in the world. There's no miracles. There's no spirit moving and involved in the world. Jesus was not divine. He was not God. God created the world, but then he removed himself from the world. And what Thomas Jefferson did to his Bible is he took scissors to it and cut out every single reference to the miraculous. There is no resurrection of Jesus Christ in Thomas Jefferson's Bible. This is not a new thing. And I don't know a single person who is walking through this process, a me-centered deconstruction, who has not been hurt at some level deeply by the church, who hasn't been hurt by hypocrisy in the church. And, and to, to those of you who are walking or have walked through that process, I am sorry for the fact that the church is not perfect. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I say that genuinely. I am sorry that you have been handed the gospel by an imperfect community. I am sorry that we have made things foundational about Jesus that are not foundational about Jesus. And the house comes crashing down when we fall short. Sorry for the way we've conformed God into our image and then handed a version of him to you that you weren't allowed to question or wrestle through. Every single person in this church 
was handed the gospel by an imperfect community. And guess what? New Life Church is no exception to that imperfect community. We are too. And at some point in our journey, we wake up to the things we were handed that weren't good. And rather than walking through those questions and those doubts with the presence of Jesus, we just tear apart the house and walk away altogether. Like, I can't reconcile the harm done in the name of Jesus. I can't reconcile the fact that I saw my dad every single Sunday morning raising his hands and praise in church, and then Monday raising his hands to beat my mom. I cannot reconcile those two things because that's a version of God that I was handed. I can't reconcile a pastor who preached sexual purity every single Sunday morning and then was cheating on his wife for a decade when nobody knew. I can't reconcile those things. See, guys, doubt and wrestling is not bad because when you doubt and you wrestle, it could be that underneath the surface there is something that is deeply longing for and hungering for truth. And that leads me to the second type of deconstruction. This is a type of deconstruction that Jesus himself did. A type of deconstruction that invites people to see God more clearly and more fully. This is a God-centered deconstruction. And it's when we realize that there's actually things we've put in this house of cards that don't belong all together. Where we begin to learn that some of our traditions and some of our preferences while those have deep meaning, they're not foundational to the next generation learning about who Jesus is. You see, the way Jesus deconstructed the religious systems around him is he used scripture to critique the world's impact on the church. Don't miss that. He used the scriptures to critique the ways that cards that didn't belong snuck their way in. Matthew 23, he's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he calls out their hypocrisy. He calls out their human traditions, and he says, you are shutting the door to the kingdom of God in people's faces, that you have added so many cards to this house of cards that have no place there, that when people see your religious systems and your religious traditions, they don't see God anymore. All they see is you. One of the central debates in the New Testament is people, Christians, Christ followers, trying to figure out what belongs in this house of cards and what does it. Like, do you realize how much time they actually spend arguing about circumcision in the New Testament? It's like one of the central debates. And, and their ultimate conclusion is that is not a card that belongs in the house. It's a, it's a tradition. Yes, it has a beautiful place. It was handed to Jewish people by God, but Peter says it specifically. He says it places an unnecessary yoke around people's necks that's too heavy for them to bear. Guys, there are things that we have added to the person of Jesus that, quite frankly, don't belong. I love how C.S. Lewis says this. This is just a beautiful statement from his book, The Great Divorce. This is what he says. Maybe. Hannah, do you want to go to that slide? There we go. Thank you. Uh, I need Christ. Not something that resembles him. I don't want a false Christ. I don't want a Christ that's made in my image. I want, I want Jesus as he is. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It needs to be shattered from time to time. He shatters it himself. Could we not almost say that the shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. So the birth of Jesus is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah 
in ruins. How arrogant do we have to be as a church to think that for the first time in human history, we have gotten all of this stuff right? <laughs> like, I don't want to be, have Jesus formed into Brad's image. I want to be formed in the image of Jesus. And where do we go for that process to happen? We don't go to TikTok where we're alone deconstructing our faith in our bedroom. We don't get discipled by people like Tucker Carlson or Whoopi Goldberg. We go to the source itself. And we allow Jesus to form us into his image, not the other way around. If your version of Jesus always agrees with you, never challenges you, then it's probably not Jesus you're following. It's some man-made version of him. Parents, is your home a place where your kids can bring the hard questions that they are wrestling with about faith? Because I promise you, if your home is not a place where they can do that, they will go find somewhere else to do that. Small group leaders, is your small group, whether it's a group of adults or students, is it a place where people can bring their hard questions about the scriptures and wrestle through them together in community with other people? Is your group a place where men and women and students can express doubts, express questions? And maybe your initial response to that is, well, I, I'm not that educated, or I don't know all the answers to all of the questions that I get asked. Like, ah, that, that whole process scares me because I have such a fragile faith myself. Can I just tell you, it's okay not to have all the answers. Like, there, I had a meeting with someone the other day, and they asked me a question about the scripture, and I didn't know what the answer was to it. And I'm not afraid to say that. And I, I think one of the most powerful statements, if you're a parent or you're a leader or, or you're in, maybe you have coworkers who know you're a Christian, one of the most powerful statements that we need to learn as the church, and this is such a statement of humility, it's this statement right here. I don't know, but let's find out together. I don't know the answer to that question. But let's find out together. This is a question that is humble in response but invites people to journey with you. This is a this is a statement that if we can learn how to build this culture in our homes, this culture in our groups, this culture even as people who maybe know we're Christians and come and talk to us, I don't know. But let's find out together. Let's wrestle through this stuff together. Some of us are asking hard questions about God because we long for him. And I want you to notice that when Thomas was in this place where he said, I need to touch Jesus, I need to feel him, I need to put my hands in, the nail pier in his nail piercings, Jesus didn't just swoop in and instantly resolve his doubts. It was eight days of Thomas lingering in his doubts. And scholar and theologian Dallas Willard, this giant of the faith, says that from time to time, God allows us to stew and stir in our doubts because it makes us worthy of his truth. Some of you are in the, the phase of lingering in your doubts right now. 
And I want you to hear that we are for you. We are for you. Your story's not over. And it's okay to be a person who's in process. A person who doesn't have all of this stuff figured out. Don't stop asking questions because there's one more phase that is possible that we are invited to on the other side of the questions. Here's, here's the biggest problem with me-centered deconstruction, okay? The biggest problem is that we tear down the house and then we don't reconstruct anything in its place. You want to know the difference between me-centered and God-centered deconstruction? It's what's reconstructed. It's what's rebuilt up. It's where you go to rebuild the house. And this is the place, this book, I, I love this book because this is the place that gives us a picture of who God is as he is. And Thomas's story kind of ends and concludes in John 20 here, but it, it actually doesn't. It goes beyond John 20. And so John 20, verses 26 through 29, says this. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. This is a statement, a confession of faith here. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You guys, the third and final stage of faith is the stage called the reconstruction phase, where we actually come to an old faith in a new and a fresh way with fresh eyes, where as we take away cards and human traditions that don't really have much of a place to reach a new generation, we ourselves get to see God more clearly as he is. We ourselves get to see Jesus and walk with him more truly and more closely. I am so grieved at friends of mine who have deconstructed their faith and the, the end result of that process that I see over and over again in their lives is the same. I am all alone. I don't have community. I don't have people to wrestle through this with or talk through this stuff with. What if our small groups and our homes became places where questions were okay because questions reveal our desire for the truth? We need to wrestle through the Bible with each other to work out our faith in community. You see this happening in the New Testament where scriptures are unclear. You see groups of Christians together wrestling through them together. Acts 17, you see this happening. We need to wrestle through the Bible with each other to work out our faith and community around the scriptures as our authority. Why would we not continue doing this today in the church if this was done in the, in the New Testament church? This process really it started for me in high school. I had a, a Bible teacher named Mr. Shank, and he was a very quirky guy. He was an Indiana Hoosier. His family was actually in the movie Hoosiers, and uh, Super quirky guy, but for some reason, uh, this Bible teacher, he moved up with my specific class every single year. So literally, from 7th grade through 12th grade, I had the same exact Bible teacher who walked with us. And, and this guy gave, I mean, I swear, he gave us a college-level Bible education. Like, parent, he drove his parents nuts because he was teaching stuff that they had never heard and, and stuff like that. Like, just really rich Bible teaching. And... Uh, 
And I'd say one of the most transformative things that he ever did for us as students was not what happened in class, but he actually opened up his classroom on Tuesday mornings for any students that wanted to come. And he said, the only purpose of this time, this Tuesday morning time, there's no agenda. The only agenda is bring your questions, bring your wrestlings, bring your doubts, and let's walk through them together in community. And I got to tell you, this process absolutely transformed my faith. Not because I brought questions that were kind of tied up neatly in a bow or, you know, easily resolved or easily answered. I mean, we were asking hard questions about faith. Questions like, uh, is the God of the Old Testament a murderer? Or how does prayer work? Or is hell real? Or why did our classmate hang himself? Like real hard questions about faith. These were not surface level questions. And here's what this process did for me. It wasn't that it just gave me simple answers to complex questions, but it taught me how to read the Bible in a way that taught me how to know God more through my wrestling. That drove me in a way to love God more, to fall more in love with this book, to search for truth in the pages of this book more fully, more devotedly, more consistently with my life. Jesus himself loved this book. He quoted it, and he lived by it, and he obeyed it, and he prayed it, and he teach, taught it. Like Jesus' life was steered by the Hebrew scriptures. He viewed them with reverence and built his entire life on them. You want to know how you move into a stage three Christian, a Christian with a new and renewed and reconstructed faith? Don't close the book. Coming back to it. Don't withdraw from community. Don't stop asking questions. Don't stop wrestling through the things that you don't understand. God's biggest desire is that you would see him as he is, that you would see him clearly, that everything else, every distorted lens that we see God through would fall away and we would begin to see him as he truly is. Do you want to know what ultimately happened to Thomas in his story? Thomas, doubting Thomas, ended up becoming a missionary to India. And this guy brought the gospel to India. To this day, you can go to India, and there are groups of people called Thomas Christians there. Why? Because a doubter worked through his faith and brought the gospel of Jesus, and it revolutionized a society. If you are here and you are in this process, your story is not done yet. Don't stop asking questions. Don't stop wrestling through things that you don't understand. Bring them to people. Bring them to your small group community. Bring them to your leader if you're a student in the church. Don't stop asking questions. Because in this process, we are invited to become stage three, phase three, reconstructed people. The type of people who know what they stand on whose house is built, like we sang a few minutes ago, on a firm foundation, not because they haven't weathered storms, but precisely because they have, and they have a faith that has been tested and tried. If you are young in this church, maybe you're still in the construction phase, find people who have walked through this process. We have stage three people in this church. 
people who have searched and wrestled with the scriptures and navigated their own doubts and have faith that's been tried by fire. These people know how to live in the tension of a really broken world and a really good God who intersects the brokenness of this world. These people are humble. They live with wisdom and compassion, but with a burning conviction. Guys, we live in a stage one and a stage two culture, or stage one and a stage two world. Let's be stage three types of people, not people who haven't wrestled, not people who haven't doubted, but people who have worked through those doubts with each other in community, constantly going back to this as the source because our desire is not to conform God into our image, but to be conformed into his. So if you're not in a small group here, and you're wrestling with doubts, and you're walking through this process alone, I want to challenge you. Get plugged into a small group community here at New Life. They're still open for sign-ups. It's not too late to join one. You can jump into one at any point. We have ways to sign up in the lobby. We have a website, newlifewayland.org slash smallgroups. Don't walk through your doubts alone. You want to know what's toxic to faith is walking through those alone with nobody else around you walking with you. Let's just be honest that we all wrestle with different questions about faith. Let's be the type of people, the type of church that help each other see Jesus as he truly is by constantly coming back to this as the source. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to respond in worship. Father, we thank you for the fact that you didn't just create the world and then withdraw yourself, but that you're intimately invested and involved in who we are as people. That you are good news for people who wrestle. God, I think of the dad in Mark 9 who comes to you with, with faith that you can heal. And he says the simple statement, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Father, I pray that we as a church, young people and older people, people who have been Christians for decades and people who are new to faith in the last month, can sit together in the same room and wrestle over the good book, wrestle over questions, bring them together, and allow us to be formed in your image because we were willing to walk through this process together. God, I pray for parents in this room. Parents who are discipling their kids. Parents who are maybe unsure of their own faith. Parents who have their own questions and their own wrestlings. God, I pray that their faith would be one where their home invites questions because they desire to point their kids towards truth, towards the foundation of your word. Not tossing out what simply makes us uncomfortable or doesn't align with our preferences, God, but adjusting our preferences to be conformed to you in your image. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.